Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Saul, how's it going? Great, getting better. <laughs> yeah, getting better, getting better. There you go. Um, so we were we were hanging out a couple weeks ago talking about the national popular vote, and I thought you had some persuasive arguments. I hadn't given it as much thought. I know it's very controversial with a lot of conservatives sure. and constitutionalists and, and libertarians, so I definitely want to talk about that. Um, but you just got back from CPAC, right? Yep, yep, was there this weekend. And uh, any any particular observations? It was, it was all... Trump all the time. Just about. I mean, yeah. you know, I went to my first CPAC in 1978. So I've got the experience. of. I think I've been to all of them except for maybe three or four. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, it was a smaller crowd than before. Um, you know, obviously they moved it from Texas and Florida back to Washington. So I guess you could use that as a little bit of an excuse. But the reality is I think we had a much smaller attendance than traditional. And uh, even the numbers that were being bandied about were somewhere around the 4,000 level. And at its heyday, it was up to eight or 9,000, depending on who you wanted to believe. So I think that um, uh, the number of participants, and particularly a lot of the younger people, weren't there that we've traditionally had. Um, but it was definitely a very pro-Trumpian crowd. Um, CPAC traditionally represents kind of a broad section of conservatives, uh, whether they're libertarian, constitutionalist, anti-tax, um, free marketeers, uh, hard right, left, you know, uh, with regards to foreign affairs, et cetera. But this was a pretty much MAGA and ultra-MAGA crowd, which uh, is a little bit different. Um, uh, very isolated with respect to either with them or against them. And, uh, you know, as you and I just were chatting a little bit before the show started here, I said, you know, it's pretty tough to draw a coalition together if you're going to basically isolate a third or half of the crowd uh, right off the bat. So I think they've got some challenges coming out of CPAC, and I think a lot of that re will reflect on Trump's presidential campaign as well. Yeah, my my beef, which I also mentioned before we got rolling, is that uh, you know he uh, Trump made it very clear that the virus was well, 100% China's fault. Right. I, I think I think that's a cop out in a lot of ways because you can yeah sure it's it's easy to blame those guys. We don't like those guys, and there's plenty of things to complain to China about, but. Um, for me, it's it's a little hypocritical because under the Trump administration, you know, he he had the opportunity to to rein in Fauci and all these guys, and he didn't do it. And right. if anything, he he amplified Fauci, platformed him. So, what I'd like to hear a candidate say is, we need to get to the bottom of the fact that taxpayers unknowingly and perhaps illegally were financing this this funky research in China and and. Don't just blame China. Let's 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 lift the lid and see what really happened there. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges for a candidate like Trump, his advantage is being very plain-spoken, simplistic, uh, populist in the sense of he very rarely dives into an issue. Um, you don't hear him discussing the nuances of anything. And I think that what appeals to much of his crowd is what fires people up. And so that populism, excitement, uh, simplicity with regards to who you blame or what you try to argue is the, the answers to the problems uh, is part of his strength. Um, but I think it also kind of takes away from the the whole debate, you know, and, and having an uh, intelligent conversation about the issues at our hand and who's, who does, who's to blame and how do we make both our country better and this world a better place to live in. Yeah, and you've been, you've been a Republican activist forever. Forever, since yeah. I was in college, yeah. Since, yeah. since Lincoln or since something Lincoln, like that. Since Lincoln almost, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not quite that old, but yeah, I, I, I ended up, uh, started out with the college Republicans at the University of Michigan, and I was actually the youngest delegate at the 1980 Republican Convention. And you know, thought I was going to go into banking, studied economics, wanted to, you know, wanted to be uh, uh, get a nice, good job at a big, fancy bank in, in uh, back in Detroit when the days when banks actually used to operate out of Detroit. And then I got sucked into politics, and I kind of stayed there most of my life. And you, you're pro one of your professors um, introduced you to Austrian economics, yep. as I recall. Yep, yep. Gary Wolfram, who's now a professor of Austrian economics at Hillsdale College. Yeah, he, he's great. Yeah, he's, he's an awesome great. guy. Yeah, yeah. We've become very good friends. Once, once you learn a little bit about Austrian economics, it's it's hard to see the world the same way ever again. Well, it is, and and uh, you know, I think anybody who's actually ever been involved in business or even in politics, uh, you you find out very quickly to kind of coin a phrase that you've often used is freedom works, you know, and, and people understand the fact that you've got to go out there and earn it yourself. And, and if you 
apply your talents, apply your work ethic, you know, based on your abilities, based on where you can go, you can accomplish almost anything. And, you know, um, I come from an immigrant family. You know, I didn't learn to speak English till I was seven years old. Um, I take a look at the opportunities that, you know, different people have had around the world. And, you know, I mean, my father found our share of the American dream in an auto factory in the city of Detroit. And, and we grew up in the city and, and uh, worked our way through the process and, and have enjoyed the fruits of, of what America has to offer. And so to me, the Austrian idea is a very simplistic one. It's very common sense. It's something that everybody relates to. And, uh, you know, the, if just a few more people would, you know, read a little von Mises or von, von Hayek, we'd be a lot better off in this world. Yes. Uh, by the way, this, we have a drinking game on this show for pe- people watching. If we quote Mises or Hayek, then oh, there you go. No, then they, get to, they get to drink. They get to drink. Oh, um, man, i got to pull out my quote, quotable quotes if yeah. I can remember any, right? <laughs> so th- this gets us to um, all the drama right now and um, and – you are a senior advisor to the National Popular Vote Foundation. What, yep. What's it called? Yeah, National Popular Vote Initiative. Is what yeah, it, yeah, okay. And and you you are a big believer that that we need to do presidential politics a little bit differently. Right. Um, and and I I think that the the knee jerk opinion of almost everyone right of center is that you're messing with the Constitution. Don't do it. It's both. A violation of, of what the founders intended, but also practically speaking, fewer of my guys are going to win if we do this. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and the problem is it's not necessarily accurate. Um, so article, article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution says the state legislature shall determine how electors are chosen. And that's basically the only reference to the Electoral College uh, in, in, you know, in the uh, founding document. And if you go back and take a look at what the founders intended, I mean, they debated 21 different proposals over 31 days, and they could not agree on how a president ought to be elected. And uh, interestingly enough, just a side note, is the one vote that came the closest was the national popular vote, which lost by one vote at the Constitutional Convention. And um, But still, they couldn't agree. And so they had just finished the long debate with regards to how the Senate and the House ought to be made up. And so they came up with this concept of an electoral college. And they said, why don't we use the same numbers that come out of uh, the congressional makeup, have every state represented by two senators, have... You know, every state's population represented by a number of electors that come out based on the House of Representatives vote. And then we'll create a kind of an electoral college based on the current college of cardinals, the way the pope is elected. And they will get together and decide who the president ought to be. And so that was basically the grand compromise they came with uh, with regards to the presidential election. But they left it up to the states to determine how those electors would be elected. So early on, it used to be the governor's appointees, at some stage, the legislative appointment. Then then there was a uh, legislative appointees, and then people started running for electoral college districts. So each state basically did it their own way, coming in and going out of the Civil War. And then when the North and the South really wanted reliable electors to come out of the Civil War and the negotiations that were going to take place with regards to what America was going to look like, um, they kind of left it there. And it worked, and nobody thought about it again. And literally for the last 150-some years, we've had a winner-take-all rule in all but two states where Nebraska and Maine used basically the congressional district plan. And so what's happened is we've evolved where in the, when the founders put this together, they didn't, we didn't have any political parties. In fact, one of the things they feared most were factions, right, where little groups would get together and collude with regards to who ought to be the magistrate, as they called them back then, the chief magistrate. There was no word the president uh, when they were putting it together. And the concept was that, you know, states would act in their selfish best interest to determine who the president was. And when you take a look at it, the founders really gave the state legislature three explicit rights uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the Constitution. One was reapportionment to affect the House. One was to elect the senators to obviously affect the Senate and have influence over the Senate. And the third was to determine how electors were chosen to figure out how to elect the president. Because the founders wanted the states to have a greater influence in the federal government. And they basically, Article 10 basically said everything not enumerated will go back to the states. Well, we've moved far from that and where the founders' ideas were and where we were constitutionally. And where we've come to today is 
you know, instead of having 13, you know, states that started out and slowly moving forward where everybody was competitive, we ran in all 50 states, we're now down to a situation where in any given election, we're may, we could be down to three to four to six battleground states. Um, in most cases, since 1988, I think we spent 98% of all resources in 10 states or less. So for all practical purposes, what happens is we elect the president of the battleground states of America versus the president of the United States of America. And I would argue that both perverts public policy as, worse, as well as politics. And so, you know, the founder's intent was that the state legislatures would figure out how to do this. And I think that's why you have Nebraska and Maine who've kind of split into the congressional district plan. People have looked at proportional plans. Uh, other states have actually, Massachusetts, I think, has passed, have gone back and forth 12 different times where they've tried different systems since, since the, the Civil War. But everybody else post the Civil War basically adopted the winner-take-all rule and have stayed there. So what we're trying to do is basically say, look, the founders gave you the right to do this. Four out of five Americans live in a decidedly Republican or decidedly Democratic state, which means by definition they're completely ignored in presidential elections. And you owe it to the citizens of your state to make sure that they're voices are heard, that they're, that they're listened to, and that, that, that the candidates pay attention to the issues that matter in your home state. So when you take a look at 95% of all presidential visits and campaigning after nominating conventions are spent in 10 states or less, it becomes a political problem. So we're trying to create a system where every voter in every state is politically relevant every time. In effect, every state becomes a battleground state going forward. And we elect 514,000 elected officials in this country, all of whom are elected by who gets the most votes, but the one, the one that represents the country as a whole. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. You mentioned uh, the 1980s. When did it become so concentrated? Like... When, what was the shift and why? Is it does it somehow track with the with the size of government or the political parties gaming the system? What's yeah? The that's an interesting question. I mean, the last time any candidate ever campaigned in all fifty states was Richard Nixon in 1960, and he only did it because he promised to visit all fifty states. And even back then, there were probably only 35, 36 competitive states. So we had already started, you know, um, decreasing the size of competitiveness across the board. I, I would think, you know, in the in the late 19th century, we just got to the point where slowly through demographics and job creation and, and just a natural movement and, and migration within the United States, states started, people started living amongst one another that agreed with one another. And so states started becoming more Republican, more, more Democrat, and the political parties became stronger. So that independent voter or that independence of voting in general became less and less. And I don't think there was any design. I just think it naturally happened that way. And we've gotten down to where there's very few battleground states at this stage of the game. Maybe it's the strength of the parties and, and their natural incentive to um, own every own and control. Yeah, everything. look, I mean, parties discourage third parties on purpose. Uh, they really? <laughs> Surprise! Yeah, they discourage participation. Um, it's it's a the incentives are such that they're designed not to allow for kind of free movement of, of votes and minds on purpose. And and I think the two-party system um, is opposed to all these different structural reforms because anytime you challenge the power of the parties, um, you know, it makes it more difficult. And, you know, look, I was first elected to the State Central Committee in Michigan in 1983, I think, and I have served in party roles literally my entire adult life. Um, ending up as a member of the Republican National Committee, uh, serving two terms as chairman of the Michigan Republican Party. I mean, I even ran for Republican National Chairman twice. So I'm a big believer that we have to work through the party system to make it work. But I think it's got to be competitive. I think it has to be fair. It has to be reflective. And I think one of the reasons we lose elections is that we nominate people based on you know, if they're from Florida or Ohio because they, they're deemed to be or assumed to be battleground states, rather than saying, who's got the best ideas? Who's the best person to articulate our message? You know, what is the constituency we actually have to win? And um, I just remember the first time I, I ran for chairman, you know, I, we got up on the stage and I looked around the room and everyone was saying, well, what differentiates all you guys? And I raised my hand. I said, I think I'm the only one here who doesn't belong to a country club. And I think maybe it's time we, you know, look at somebody who grew up in the city and is an immigrant and, you know, 
came from a blue collar family rather than the votes we get every day. And so that that's that's a challenge for us as a party. So the 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 initial reaction that folks are going to have is um, this this is a violation of the Constitution. The Constitution lays it out this way. Um, do you want to change the Constitution? No, we don't, because the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, says the state legislature gets to decide how electors are chosen. That's it. That's what the Constitution says, and that was the intent. So whether we do it by popular vote, whether we do it by congressional districts, whether we do it by um, a proportional vote, all of that is allowed within the Constitution. I mean, if I could make the argument and get it passed in the legislature that whoever wrote the best essay on Michigan football would get selected to serve as an elector at the Electoral College, it would be constitutional because it gives the state legislature plenary power. It's an exclusive power given to the state legislature to determine how those electors are chosen. So from a constitutional point of view, this is clearly constitutional. Now, the question is, you know, there clearly we're a litigious society. I suspect somebody will sue it based on all kinds of different, you know, parameters and excuses. But the, you know, the the Supreme Court has upheld the the right of state legislatures to determine how the rules are set, uh, how these delegates meet and where they meet. Everything has basically been set um, and held up by the Supreme Court based on that those seventeen words within the Constitution. So I've. I'm very doubtful that anybody's going to win that in court and argue that this is not a constitutional way of proceeding. So, and you mentioned Nebraska and Maine have done some version of this, although it's based on congressional Correct. district. Um, why not just encourage states to just do it then? Well, they can. They can do it any way they want. Um, the issue is that if you don't, the problem with the congressional district plan is in, you're going to take a bad system and make it worse. Instead of six to ten battleground states, we're going to have twenty to thirty congressional districts, right? That are that are swing, you know, districts. So instead of worrying about what the voters in Pennsylvania are advocating for, you're going to go and see what the Mayo Clinic wants in the Minneapolis area. That happens to be a swing area, and so. Again, our purpose is to make sure that every voter counts in every state. And I want to create a system where, you know, whether it's the Great Lakes of Michigan and the assets and the, the jobs and the issues that affect the people in Michigan are as relevant as the people in Ohio or Florida. And that's not the case today. And so that's what I think is the main policy perspective is that even Matthew Dowdy, very famously back when he was Bush's pollster, said, you know, we only poll in 18 states. And the reason it was 18 states, he says, is because there's only 18 potential battleground states. And then obviously when we get down to it, there's eight to 10, three to four, six. I mean, this time around, we could have, there's probably the likelihood we're going to have four to six states that are battleground states. That's a pretty bad way to pick a president. So you don't want to, you don't want to amend the constitution. Right. Um, because that process is difficult. If no, not. Not, not, I don't think it's any more difficult than what, we, what we're doing. It's just that if you amend the Constitution, you truly nationalize a national popular vote. And what happens is then, if you amended the Constitution, the way to do it is you would eliminate Article 2, Section 1, which would then nationalize the, the elections. Then Congress, probably the DOJ or somebody would run presidential elections. You take elections. the power away from the states. You take the power away from the states. The most important thing of the Electoral College is that it gives the state legislature the right to administer and run presidential elections. So explain the mechanisms of the state compact and some history on that because it's it's a little complicated sure. if you haven't heard it before. No, you're right. I mean, and the way to look at the state compact is it's an agreement between the states, very similar to like the lottery or the Great Lakes Compact if you're in the Midwest, the Dairy Compact with if you're in the Northeast. States agree amongst themselves to act in a certain way. So this is an 888-word compact. It's very straightforward. And it says that when enough states that have 270 electoral votes or more join this compact, it kicks in. And when it's triggered, what it does is those compacting states with 270 electoral votes or more send their delegates, their, their electors of the Electoral College, to the Electoral College based on who wins the national popular vote in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia. Regardless of whether they're in the compact or not, all 50 states and the District of Columbia start to participate in the process. Um, and so as long as in July of the presidential year, there's enough states that have 270 electoral votes or more that are in a compact, it's in effect. 
if there are some un- unintended consequences or people are un- unhappy of the way it works, any of those compacting states could get out the same way they got in, which is be a vote of the state legislature. So again, you're preserving states' rights. You're allowing the state to act in its selfish best interests and say, yes, this makes sense for me or no, it doesn't. And then if not, you can go back to the current winner-take-all rule or go somewhere else. But you know, for me, it's very hard to understand why would four out of five Americans want a system where their vote is basically taken for granted? That's the frustration for me in this process. And I just look at the pan, I mean, look, we have probably the largest entitlement program in the history of our country with no child left behind and then Medicare D, basically free prescription drugs, the two largest entitlement programs were passed by Republican presidents who were pandering to either the voters in the I-4 corridor of Florida or the soccer moms in Ohio trying to buy their votes by giving them more free stuff. I mean, what would be a more damning argument of the current system than taking a look at some of those examples? Um, on average, a battleground state gets 7% more funding than non-battleground states. So those are, those are some of the problems that, that happen there. Um, but getting back to your, your question, I mean, look, we've now passed 15 states plus the District of Columbia. Um, there are states with 195 electoral votes in the compact. Um, so we're only 75 votes away. Um, so depending on which states pass it next, we could be five or six states away from actually having the compact come into play. Realistically, it's not going to happen by 2024, but I think there's at least a 50-50 chance that it happens by 2028. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So this uh, this idea was born, and this gets to to which states have signed on to this. It's this is very much a blue state thing so far, so um, far, and and it goes back to, I'm guessing it goes back to Bush versus Gore. Well, yes and no. Uh, that was kind of when it started publicly. The the guy who started this group is called uh, his name is John Koza. Um, interestingly enough, he happens to have three PhDs from the University of Michigan. Um, one of them was how to game the Electoral College. Are PhDs from Michigan a little bit better? Uh, they may or may not be, but they're there, right? Uh, but three of them is pretty damn impressive. You had a chance under, to yeah, tout yeah, the home state. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. That's I'm, I'm trying to sneak that in every time I can. Um, now, you know, look, he, he uh, figured out how to game the Electoral College, uh, which was his PhD. And then he also um, uh, had a one of his PhDs was in some statistical in statistics, basically. And uh, he got out of school, and he actually is the guy who created the algorithm for the scratch-off lottery ticket. And that's where he made his millions. He created uh, American Scientific. They made the scratch-off lottery tickets. And they used Interstate Compact to basically pass lottery laws around the country. So after he had built this business and then sold it, um, sitting around retired and saying, look, I want to do do something different, give something back. He combined one PhD with another PhD in his business and said, you know what? We could fix this problem that he wrote about gaming the Electoral College and came up with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And so it was kind of his idea with regards to reform. And then the timing was right because of what happened in Florida. And so, uh, you know, he started the process and he actually now lives in California. So California ended up being the first state that he went to and said, hey, what do you think of this? California being the largest state in the country, that is constantly ignored because it is a solid democratic state. So this makes a lot of sense. And then the process started. Um, Today, uh, other 15 states, all of them are democratic states. However, uh, New York, when it passed in New York, had a Republican Senate. Um, It has actually passed nine other states in one in one house but has died in the second one so states like arizona oklahoma tennessee georgia michigan um you know which are red states have passed this bill as well they just haven't been passed in a law yet so they they passed one house they died in the second one for a variety of different reasons um so it's it's constantly into play and and it is very much a bipartisan effort you got bipartisan agreement and bipartisan opposition to this but this is the kind of thing that you know unfortunately is not a there's a there's no good elevator speech other than saying you know we want to pass a bill that makes every vote count but most people think every vote counts today um you know when we did polling pre the kind of trump elections pre gore and 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 hillary clinton winning 
losing because of the Electoral College votes. Most people had no idea how the Electoral College worked. You know, now there's maybe 25, 30 percent that do. And, you know, normally the question you get is, well, what fraternities do they have in the Electoral College, right? I mean, it's almost that silly. Um, so we're having that conversation, educating the general public. Um, people are surprised that more people don't participate in the electoral process. They're surprised that whoever wins the most votes doesn't win. Um, now they understand there is something called the Electoral College and somehow somebody who doesn't get the most votes can win. But most people still don't know why and what the what the impetus is and whether that's a good or a bad thing. It's a, I mean, it, it naturally sort of devolves into a partisan instinct because the the examples of, of one president winning, even though the other candidate had more votes, was um, Gore, Clinton, absolutely, and, and who ran against well, actually, Trump? Yeah. yeah, it was Gore and Clinton. I mean, yeah. that that was exactly how it worked out. And and what you had a situation is that, you know, um, Republicans tend to knee jerk against us because they think Al Gore and Hillary Clinton would be president. Democrats tend to knee jerk for it because they think Al Gore and Hillary Clinton would be president. Uh, but as that uh, favorite broadcaster back in my day, uh, Paul Harvey used to say, then there's the rest of the story. And that's really the conversation we're having here is about the rest of the story. I mean, you know, does it make sense that we're pandering to battleground states and giving them more attention than others? And think of the political engagement. Uh, if you happen to be from a battleground state and you're a governor or a state legislator, the odds are every presidential candidate is calling you, knows who you are. The influence that you have in setting public policy is pretty amazing. Um, the first time I ran for RNC chairman, I actually had been backing the national popular vote. And the chairman from Ohio called me out at a private chairman's meeting. And he said, this is a ridiculous idea. You know, I mean, and I looked at him and I said, well, you know, his, his name is Bob Bennett. And Bob was the longest serving chairman in the history of, of the Republican Party. And and I asked him, I said, well, how many presidential candidates have ever been in your living room? And he's like, all of them, you know, he's a big, rolly guy. And I said, well, how many of them know your children? He says, all of them. And I looked up and down the table to the other 50 state chairs sitting there. And I said, how many of you can say the same thing? I mean, how many of you have had a presidential candidate in your living room? And I said, it's not because Bob is smarter than any of us or is better than any of us. He just lives in the quintessential battleground state of Ohio. And so presidential candidates are pandering to him. And when the time comes to pick judges or make appointments to the cabinet or send over an ambassador, he has a lot more influence than the chairman in the rest of the, you know, in the rest of the country. That, that's, that's a classic example how you pervert politics in this political process. So if you go back and, and apply the new rule of popular vote historically, um, the Democrats benefit. Um, but has there been any attempt to sort of um, game out what would happen when voting constituencies in, in marginalized states like deep red or deep blue states? Um, do more people show up? Do different types of people show up? Um, what do you think happens? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good question, actually. Um, so first of all, let's remember that if you go back and look at the history of a national popular vote, we've never really run a national popular vote, right? We've played by the rules, and the rules are you win enough states to win the Electoral College. So we don't campaign in some of the largest states in the country, be it California, New York, or Texas, um, because they're solidly Republican or solidly Democrat. Um, there are actually more Republicans living behind the blue wall of California than 27 other states combined. So you've got to kind of theoretically understand that there is, we've never really had a popular vote, although the results of the election under the current rules have given a popular vote advantage to the Democrats. Now, having said that, on average, in a battleground state, you're getting 74 to 78% voter turnout, anywhere from 11 to 13% higher than a non-battleground state. Uh, two of the most Republican states in the country, uh, Utah and Oklahoma, are averaging voter turnouts in the 50 to 55 percent tile. Um, I always use this example that in 2012 was the first time we spent a billion dollars on the presidential election. And uh, we spent about $760 million in the last three battleground states of Ohio, Virginia, and Florida. You literally had the best of the best of both sides campaigning in those three states. Um, you know, Barack Obama won all three of those states with a combined margin of victory of about 386,000 votes, and he got 70 electoral votes. 
Uh, Oklahoma was the second most Republican state in the country. Mitt Romney spent zero because he knew he was going to win. Barack Obama spent zero because he knew he was going to lose. And Mitt Romney came out of Oklahoma with a 450,000 vote margin, wiping out the margin of three of the biggest and most expensive states in the country, but he only got seven electoral votes. So there's kind of like an anecdotal example of how smaller red states tend to be redder than blue states are blue. Size becomes secondary to margin of victory, right? What kind of margin can you drive in these different states? Because by adding up the margins, you add up the popular vote and determine who the president is. The fact that California, as an example, has got 55 electoral votes, 38, 36, 38 million people, but their average margin of victory is only like 1.4 to 1.8 million votes. If you took a look at the seven box states just east of California, they make up seven or they make up 27 electoral votes, almost exactly half. And their margin of victory on behalf of the Republicans is about 1.6 to 1.7 million votes. So half the size of the states, just because of the voter patterns, the way people vote, who gets out to vote, almost make up the difference there. So until we really have a national popular vote, it'd be pretty tough to determine. Um, I happen to sit on the NRA's National Board's Public Affairs Committee. We've identified over 52 Second Amendment supporters in this country. You know, on any given election year, we only turn out like 25 to 30 million voters because we're only turning them out in battleground states. If we had a national popular vote where every voter in every state became politically relevant every time, where it didn't matter whether you pulled a voter out of Ohio or Florida or Montana or Idaho, the NRA would be pulling voters out of every corner of the country. And Right to Life would do the same. Libertarians would do the same. Farm Bureau would do the same. You name the special interest group, all of a sudden the incentive to participate would be very different. And in the age of micro-targeting, states' lines have become secondary in many cases. Um, and if you created... The way to look at a national popular vote election would be kind of like a competitive U.S. Senate or gubernatorial election. You would basically create a single-member district, being the United States as a whole, and, and Republicans would campaign to maximize their votes in outstate America, minimize their losses in, in urban areas, and the Democrats would do the opposite. And, you know, we now have over 4,000 pieces of information on every voter in America. So when we actually campaign under micro-targeting, we don't, we don't go after communities or we don't go after you know, counties or cities, we literally go after households and we know who in that household voted how. Um, and so that's a very, very different way of campaigning in the last 15, 20 years. And it's only going to get more sophisticated. And so those lines are very arbitrary. And again, I think they benefit the Democrats just because there's so many more safe Democratic states and there are safe Republican states. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. This doesn't really do anything for third parties like libertarians. Not from an electoral standpoint, but it might from an influence standpoint. If you take a look at the libertarian and liberty-minded voter across America, um, you know people estimate anywhere from five to ten million votes, depending on who you're talking to and how you define them. But they're you know, most elections are won between two and five million votes. So theoretically, the Liberty vote could have a huge effect uh, on who won the presidential election. So from an influence standpoint, you could make the argument that, you know, have a questionnaire, have a voter's questionnaire. You know, where do you stand on key issues that are important to liberty-minded people? Um, you know, I, I spoke at Liberty Fest up in, in uh, New Hampshire and, and actually participated at Pork Fest. And we had this conversation with a lot of people saying there aren't enough libertarians living in one municipality or one state, even given this free state of New Hampshire, that can really make a difference. They can have an influence, but they can't make a big difference. But if all of a sudden you could kind of combine the libertarian vote and force a debate on issues that are important to libertarians, then all of a sudden I think it would have an effect on presidential elections. Now, again, we're a long ways away from potentially electing a libertarian president, 
But you could surely move presidential candidates to at least be cognizant of the issues that are important to them and why freedom has an implication and why liberty matters and, and how you handle issues. And to me, from a policy standpoint, ultimately that's the goal, right? We elect, you know, we elect individuals to affect public policy. So if all of a sudden we could create a system that maybe would give libertarians a better voice than they have today, which is basically zero, you know, as a, as a liberty voter, as someone who's been active in that movement, I would argue it's, it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we were talking about CPAC earlier and, and the, the rise of, of national conservatism. Not not America first so much, but there's a strain of that that's, sure. that's really just a new flavor of big government conservatism once you use the power of the state to do that. I think um, you could say with a lot of confidence that the liberty vote doesn't seem to matter that much right now. I think that's true. And, and, and look, Matt, I mean, there, there, there's a frustration for people who care, right, who want to get engaged in the, in the, in the public square and, and debate the issues. If your vote doesn't matter, right, and, and it, it, it's almost like it doubles down if you're a libertarian, it really doesn't matter, right? You're the ultra, you're the, the uber doesn't matter voter um, because not only are you in a state that doesn't matter, you're also a libertarian party voter um, or a third party candidate voter, and that really doesn't matter under the current system. So, you know, I would suggest that it would be an interesting kind of intellectual debate to sit there and take a look and say, well, could we actually move people, um, you know, on issues on, you know, property seizure and on taxes and on regulation and, and you know, on cross-state movement of, you know, guns and other issues. I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of issues on medical marijuana and safe banking laws and, and things that, you know, are baby steps in a, in a progression towards more freedom um, that if there was a voting base that would make a difference, you might have candidates be more susceptible to un- listening to at least those issues and having an opportunity to affect those issues. I mean, that was the logic of the Tea Party, right? Is yeah. that, that we we represented a, a swing voting block, and and we wanted to see um, limited government and fiscal responsibility, and and more strict adherence to those constitutional principles that that frankly both parties seem to run over today. So I, I get the logic of of potentially creating a block of liberty votes that are empowered, which is which is why. Um, I'm at least open to this idea. Like I think it's I think it's interesting because hopefully we can all agree that if if you're caring about liberty right now, things are not headed in the right That's direction. Right. Well, look, I think and I think you bring up an important point. If you take a look at the Tea Party people, right? So whether it was the Tea Party folks who basically didn't like either political party, or today's uh, you know culturally conservative MAGA voters, the same thing. They didn't like either political party, and so they found a place to have their votes. Right. Or have their voice heard. And so, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was a Tea Party. Today, it's the MAGA movement. Um, But the libertarians really don't have a place yet. Right. They're still looking for a home. And maybe you can create your own. Right. Which would be my argument is why not take a look at we're at a point today where we elect almost 90 percent of our elected officials are elected in their primaries. Right. There's only 40 to 45 competitive congressional seats in the country. Um, there's probably 10 to 15 congr- you know, competitive U.S. Senate seats in the country. There's probably less than 10 competitive governor's uh, states in the country. And so if you live in the right state and you happen to be in that majority party, your party wins. Um, and that forces people to take positions that are more populist based on their base, right? So the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world or the AOCs of the world come out of um, a primary system and a political system that really doesn't force people to look for consensus, to look for common ground, uh, to take to pay attention to what the minority thinks. Um, it just all they have to do is make sure they can get through their primary and they can act any way they want. Um, again, libertarians have a small voice in a process like that, a very small voice in a process like that. You know, in New Hampshire, they've been lucky through the free state movement and through some of the activities, they've actually elected, you know, a large number. Some say as high as 20 to 25 percent of the state legislatures are at least liberty minded legislators, if not free staters. And they have an influence in the process, but they still don't actually run it or control it or push it to the extent they wanted to. But again, in, in the United States, given a national popular vote for president, if you could have 10, if all of a sudden liberty voters knew their votes mattered, I mean, how many of, how many closet libertarians do we have, right? Who, who wouldn't even think about voting 
on a libertarian line or a liberty voted candidate that might come out of the woodwork if all of a sudden there was a way to move uh, the debate and move public policy. Well, part, part of our problem is that we think that showing up to vote to divide the spoils of someone <laughs> right. else's work is, is, is fundamentally offensive. Right, right. So we, we have that problem. Um, I want to go back. Legalized bl- blunder is not a good thing. It's <laughs> not, not for us at least, but I want to go back to something and I, I don't, I don't know that I agree with you, but I, I don't have a small argument against it. And this, this goes back to, um, uh, George W. Bush pandering to, to voters, swing voters, seniors sure. in Florida and Ohio. Um, uh, that sort of defines politics in a nutshell. Absolutely. And it's, it's, there's nothing new about that. There's there's nothing specific about that. So the, it was just so blatant. Yeah, it, it was it was shamelessly blatant. Yeah. And I don't honestly, I don't think I don't think the Republican Party has has fully recovered from that. Although I think the Tea Party, in a lot of ways, was a backlash against precisely that kind of thing. I agree. Um, that's one of the great mythologies as a Tea Party was that it was a backlash against Obama, and it wasn't. It was a backlash against big government Republicans. Um, so the question is, does this in any way sort of change the natural incentive to buy votes? And I'm not, I'm not convinced it does. Well, um, you know, I think it's a very good point. Um, it's almost like a cultural shift. Like there were traditions where there there were certain lines you just didn't cross, right? And when it came to political pandering, now now the cow's out of the barn, and everybody's buying, trying to buy everybody's vote with everything, right? So at a what, certain what, what did Andrew Yang say? <laughs> I'm literally trying to give you somebody else's money. Right, right, he right. Didn't Why say that somebody else's? It, yeah. Well, it's the old adage, you know, if you you know, you uh, rob Peter to pay Paul, you can normally count on Paul's support, right? So that, that's kind of the, the, uh, the way we look at politics in many ways. Look, I think it makes it a little harder to do that. Um, I, I still think that it is distasteful to most Americans, the, the idea of buying people's votes. Um, but they turn a blind eye when it's to them, right? And when it's small, when it's in my community and it's in my backyard, and you know it was unique because I can make an argument why it's there, it's a little bit different. But when you create a situation where it's national, it's a lot harder to do, right? It's, it's like the old adage, you know, it's, it's fairly easy to rob one bank on a given day. It's a lot harder to rob 50 on the same day. So, you know, you kind of have the, the law of big numbers makes it a little more difficult to do that. Um, now, many people, and particularly those even, you know, in a libertarian uh, mindset would sit there and say, you're just creating a system that allows for more buying of votes and more pandering to voters across the board. And we're already in a society that, you know, how much can we give away to anybody? So legalized plundering, plunder is, is almost, you know, a bumper sticker if people understood what it meant. Um, they just think that we ought to be giving kids free tuition. And the fact that, you know, I paid for mine and you paid for yours and we worked our way through school or whatever the case may be, um, doesn't matter anymore. Uh, but if you're a working class American who chose not to go to college and now you're forced to pay for some yuppie kid who took a class that can't get him a job, um, you know, that's as close as you can get to government theft as I can define. But yet we've got we just had a huge demonstration here in Washington uh, just a week ago, you know, talking about, you know, get rid of the, you know, get rid of the school debt for everybody. And, and, you know, my wife and I both had debts coming out of college and, and probably spent close to 20 years paying off little by little, you know, and we paid them off. And, uh, you know, um, I, I just, you know, those are, that's just another example. All of, of us boomers make that argument. We, we actually paid off our own yeah, college Yeah, we actually debt. did, you know, and, and I'm, I'm okay. You know, you signed a piece of paper and accepted a debt, you know, be responsible for it. It's not a big, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so old culturally, fashioned. it's yeah. very old fashioned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, not being able to get something for free just kind of sucks, you yeah. know, but that's, that's part of the reason this country was founded. And, you know, people like my parents and others who, you know, escaped communism came here so they could, you know, find their share of the American dream where it may be but that's like i think it's a um i i don't think I don't, I don't like silver bullets and and i don't think that your proposal is a silver bullet either um because i think ultimately it's 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 cultural and it's 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 values and it's what it's what people actually believe in this country that that protects us from kind of the tyranny of the majority and yep. just spending ourselves into oblivion and and right now, it feels like we're we're on retreat, um, but it does. You know, the, one of the fundamental questions of grassroots organization is why should I bother? 
why should I show up? Why should I care? Right. And that to me, that's one of the compelling arguments that you're making is like, um, if I'm a gun owner in California, I don't matter right now right. when it comes to presidential politics. Um, or libertarians basically anywhere. Um, so it's, it's an interesting dynamic. What is the most persuasive argument that your, your opponents make? So I would say the, uh, uh, the most persuasive is probably that um, uh, you have to trade your state's identity for a national interest, right? So basically, you know, if you're a voter in Michigan um, and a Democrat were to win uh, the state of Michigan, but a Republican won the national popular vote, your electors could would be sent, and you're part of the compact, your electors would be sent on behalf of the Republican to the Electoral College. Um, so what happens is we're giving up that local right to do that. So oftentimes they say we're going to lose that right in our home states. Well, the reality is today under the winner-take-all rule, that happens to anybody who's in the minority, right? So if you win Michigan by one vote, you get 100% of the delegates, which means 50% minus one of the voters got nothing, right? So they're already losing their vote and their influence. At least under a national popular vote, your vote would be added to the other votes all over the country. I'm trying to remember the founder. One of the founders actually argued um, uh, during the Continental, Continental Congress was that that they wanted to make sure that voters could cross state lines for people who have an interest. And at that time, it was more an agrarian issue. You know, farmers wanted to say, hey, we got to team up together and make sure the big cities don't dominate us. 250 years later, very similar argument, but the same principle was a matter that we needed to combine people of like-minded interests across the country. Now, at the time, it was 13 colonies versus the 50 you know, states plus six territories, but it still matters. Um, that's probably the most kind of emotional argument that works. I think uh, with a small I, ignorant article is that it's not constitutional. You pull out Article 2, Section 1, read it. It's very plain, straightforward. They go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, uh, um, trying to think of what would be another one. It's not what the founders intended. Uh, not true. Read, you know, Federalist 68. Go back and take a look at the debate the founders had. Many people think the Electoral College is the winner-take-all rule that we currently operate under, and they don't understand that that is actually a state law. So the Electoral College is the process. The Electoral College is the, you know, is a system that is designed for states to administer and run elections and send their electors there. But it's a state law that determines how you do that, whether it's congressional district plan, winner-take-all, or national popular vote. So I'd say those are probably the three major arguments against it. Um, you know, we there's actually, if you ever, ever are interested, you can go to this nationalpopularvote.com and they have their myth section. And it's like 140 of the most commonly raised questions that different state legislatures have had over the over the years this has been debated. And it's really pretty good. It talks about, you know, do big states dominate, you know, um, doesn't this protect little states? And, you know, the reality is it doesn't. You know, you've got... It just matters if you're a battleground state. It doesn't matter if you're big or small, if you're rural or suburban. It's a function of whether you're a battleground state. You know, interestingly enough, if you take a look at the, I think there are 13 states that have four electoral votes or less. Six are decidedly Republican, six are decidedly Democrat, and only one's battleground state. And those are the ones that matter. And the same thing is true today. You know, if the 13 largest states actually got together and colluded, they could elect the president of the United States by a plurality vote in those 13 states only. So when people say, oh, the Electoral College, to, you know, uh, protects us so when it, it forces it to be spread out around the country, not really. I mean, if you really wanted to be Machiavellian, you could sit there and say, wait a minute, 13 states, plurality vote, we don't even a majority, and you get 100% of those delegates, you elect the President of the United States. That's probably more doable than not, you know, if you keep, if you, if you legalize, you know, legalize, you know, legalize plunder and get away with it. Yeah. So I want to wrap up with a, a story I told you before, and this this gets to your your family's roots and and um, the the need to to build a culture based on values that 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 actually cherishes and defends freedom. Um, what I noticed the first time that I went to Lithuania, and this was two thousand and three, after after they were free, um, that there was a keen and visceral sense for what big government was all about because they had lived through it because they literally saw their family shot in the streets and stacked up along the, the main thoroughfare. And Americans generally don't know that story. They, they haven't had that visceral sense for what big government's all about. 
but that's why your family came here. That's right. No, and look, I mean, we as Americans are very lucky, right? I mean, almost all the wars have and will be fought outside of our borders. Um, we are on a big island. Uh, North America is protected by the waterway, by you know the Antarctica, et cetera, and the North Pole, and that keeps everybody out of our hemisphere in most cases. And so, you know, we're spoiled. I mean, we don't, you know, we send our sons and daughters away to fight a war that may or may not matter to some people. Um, very frustrating. We lose a lot of good people. Um, but we're still not having our buildings blown up, which is why 9-11 had such a visceral effect on our country, because we finally saw it on our own homeland and, and reacted accordingly. But look at all the freedoms we gave up because of it. It scared us so much. So the idea of, of you know, people from all over the world, this is the only country in the world people literally die trying to get into versus trying to get out of, you know, and and much of it is because of freedom. The right reason most people come here is for freedom. Um, now there's a whole group that comes here for a free lunch and they realize how, what a generous country we are. And, and there's others who try to abuse the system, but we still, we're still that sh shining city on a hill. We're still the beacon of freedom all over the world. And, and it's the only place that literally people can come and at least today, uh, if, if the woke culture doesn't succeed, you know, express their opinions, have shows like this, have an honest debate, uh, have a very emotional debate against one another and still walk away friends and share a drink and, and laugh about something else. And I always try to point out the fact that, you know, if you go to a, a CPAC as an example, it w there was a bunch of people saying, we were talking about this, this, this uh, concept actually, and somebody said, well, you're probably one of the few people here, you know, everybody disagrees with you. And I said, well, I think if everybody in this room were looked to the left and to the right, you'd finally probably find an issue you vehemently disagree with the person next to you. I mean, if you really wanted to find a place where everybody agreed with one another, you'd almost have to look in a mirror. So we are a, a, a culture that allows for diversity and for freedom of thought and discussion. And I think that's what makes this country great. And so, you know, if you're going to live in that kind of system and we've created this democratic republic where we are electing our representatives and literally we do this with every other elected office in the country, wouldn't it make sense that the one office that represents the country as a whole is also by elected by the same people? I think it does. I think that's the big argument for it. So where, so I expect some spicy comments on this episode. Um, and maybe a few people will disagree with you, um, but people may also want to find out more information. Where do, where do, where do we go to find out more about this sure. project so, and, and to send you hate mail if, yeah, if yeah. necessary? So you can, you can uh, you go to nationalpopularvote.com. Uh, if you go to nationalpopularvote.com, you'll find all kinds of information on this issue, and, and you can take a look at it and just Google it, and you'll find out people who are both for it and against it and making the arguments uh, either way. And uh, uh, I'll make it real easy. I'll just give you my personal Gmail address if you want to. You just, it's S Anuzis, my first name and last name, S-A-N-U-Z-I-S at gmail.com. And uh, I get emails and comments on this all the time, and I literally engage people daily on this because I do think it's important. Uh, I think there are legitimate debates. And 99% of the time, it's not that people necessarily come on board with what the arguments are, but it's definitely, they come out saying, it's not what I thought it was. It's not why I ex what I expected. And they look at it with a different mindset and a little bit of an open mind. And, you know, that's a big part of the process as well. Okay, so it's great catching up. Thanks yeah, for doing good this. good to be with you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video subscribe and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.